It's important to America to get a man up there first. I'm planning on being the first man to ride the rocket. There have been more than 100 rocket launch failures in the history of American space exploration. And I say more than 100 because while I do research for these talks, after I started counting past 100, I no longer felt that was an important use of my time this week. So I just say more than 100 in the history of American space exploration. Uh, those are all real footage of, of uh, rocket test failures that have been gone on because basically after World War II, what German and American scientists were trying to do is basically how do you take a giant missile and make it even bigger so that it can escape Earth's gravity and put a seat where the explosive part used to be. And that was what they were trying to accomplish. And, and even when they got to the place where they wanted to get serious about manned space exploration, putting a person in space, uh, they even had nine failures just in that process. So in 1959, they start the Mercury Project, where Alan Shepard was scheduled to be the first person launched in space, the original seven astronauts. That was from the movie The Right Stuff, where it, where it talks about their lives. Alan Shepard's launch was scheduled to be uh, May 5th, 1961, was when he was going to go up. And in the couple of years leading up to that, they had nine launch failures, and they started to get some of the wrinkles ironed out a little bit. They had a couple of successful launches, and so they felt ready to go. They were going to have their last test launch 10 days before on April 25th, where they felt like this was going to be it, we're ready to go. 
launches in 10 days. They put a robotic astronaut dummy in the seat where Alan Shepard was going to sit. And on April 25th, he stood there watching as his rocket went up and seven minutes into the launch, it exploded on its way up. Things didn't go right. And he still climbed in that thing 10 days later, I don't know, hoping it would just go okay. There wasn't a successful test between that and his launch, and he did end up becoming the first American person in space uh, on April 5th, 1961. Welcome to Hope, everybody. My name is Eli Sudarth. I'm the discipleship minister here on staff at Hope Ankeny, and I'm excited to start a new message series with you this week. Over the next couple of weeks coming up, we're going to be talking about God and the tough stuff. Where is God when things don't seem to be going well? And today, especially, we're going to be talking about God in our failure. Where is God when I experience failure? And what is my relationship with him supposed to look like? What are the ways that I'm supposed to interact with God when I keep encountering failures in this life? And, and the reason we're doing a series like this is because we believe that the Bible speaks into those parts of our lives, the parts of our lives that don't look good. We, we, in Christianity, we have a temptation to put a brave face on, to pretend like things are all right, when in reality, the Bible actually doesn't do that. The Bible is incredibly honest that this life is difficult, that this life is hard. I think if you were to, if you were to start uh, your own religion tomorrow, you were just going to decide, I'm going to start my own religion, and you needed to write a new religious text to describe what you believe, I doubt you would write a book about example after example of all of the ways people have failed miserably to do the thing that you want them to do, and yet that's what the Bible looks like. Failure after failure of people we look up to as biblical heroes, and the Bible is honest, that no one can follow God perfectly, and that's not even the point. That one of the first leaders of the people of God in the book of Exodus, Moses, killed a guy and ran away for decades. The first king of Israel went completely insane and started a civil war that shattered his entire country. And he lost his life. His successor, David, became king. And he had the guy who's, who was the husband of the wife he was cheating on murdered and tried to cover that up. Not a great start if you wanted to, to promote this movement of following God. And yet the Bible is honest. It's actually why I find the Bible so trustworthy is that it doesn't put on a pretend face. I believe I see myself in a lot of these characters in the Bible, especially in Paul who wrote this. Paul from the New Testament wrote in 2 Corinthians, so now I boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ can work through me. That's why I take pleasure in my weaknesses and in the insults, hardships, persecutions, and troubles that I suffer for Christ. Let's all read this last line together. For when I am weak, then I am strong. The Bible is honest. And there are things that we can look at in Scripture that help us take an honest look at where we can find God in our failures. That's the thing about failure. It's something that you can only experience. You know, a lot of times when we prepare for these sermons, these messages, we get to talk about these great, nice-sounding philosophical ideas. It gives us thoughts to chew on for a couple of days, hopefully, or you just forget it when you leave. But, but it's, it's nice. It's a lot of big ideas. But failure, there's no philosophy of failure, Either you've experienced it and you know it when you see it, or if you haven't experienced failure yet in your life, just wait a minute. Your rocket's probably still just sitting on the launch pad ready to take off and explode at some point. It will happen to you. And where is God when you experience those things? So instead of talking philosophically about failure, I think we need to take the case study approach today where we look at, we're going to look at Paul's life in relationship to his failure because Paul was a person. 
You'll hear us talk a lot in church about Paul, and maybe this is the first time you've been in church before, and you're like, who is this Paul they keep talking about? Paul's not God. He's not Jesus. Paul wasn't a divine person. He was a man, a regular person like us, who God used to do great things. God inspired Paul to write most of the New Testament to start the movement of Christianity, but he was a person who experienced tremendous failure in his life. And I think the reason the Bible is written the way it is, the reason God inspired the Bible to be honest about failure is we can learn lessons from it if we take it seriously. Apply the lessons learned from the people in Scripture so that we don't have to repeat them in our own lives. So if we're going to do the case study thing with Paul, we need to know who is he? You know, who is this guy we talk about in church so much? Paul is a person, his given Jewish name is Saul. So when you encounter him, his name changes. A lot of that happens in the Bible. He starts out being called Saul, which is a Jewish name. Paul is the Greek version of the same name. So the reason Paul Paul started going by that name is because he was reaching out to Greek-speaking peoples and he wanted to accommodate them by offering a name for himself that they would understand that was familiar to them. So Saul and Paul mean the same thing. Uh, My full name is actually Elias, which is the same meaning in Greek as the Hebrew name Elijah. They're the same meanings, it's just uh, different for Hebrew and Greek. The funny thing is, is I'm neither Greek nor Jewish, so I'll have to ask my parents about that someday. Uh, He was born in eastern Turkey in the city of Tarsus, what is modern-day Turkey now. So if you can kind of picture the the Mediterranean Sea as it bends down towards Syria and Israel, it's right on that corner up there. Uh, His mother was Jewish. His father was a Roman citizen. He was born in about the year 6 AD, so he's a contemporary of Jesus' disciples. He never met Jesus in person. He he encountered Jesus as the risen Christ, but uh, Turkey, obviously, farther north than Jerusalem. But Paul would have known and been familiar with Peter and James and Jesus' disciples, so that's the time that he was living in. Tarsus was an interesting city. Uh, at the time. You had to go through Tarsus if you wanted to go from Greece and Europe over to Asia. It was kind of a crossroads at that time. And so a lot of different languages were a part of Tarsus. Paul would have spoken Hebrew, Greek, Latin, probably Aramaic. And Paul was highly educated. Paul was, Paul was brilliant, really. I mean, if you think about the number of people who could read and write back in that day and that Paul wrote half of the New Testament on his, on his own, inspired by God, he was a smart person. He didn't get to where he was by being uneducated. Paul, in order to become a part of the sect of Pharisee Judaism that he was a part of, Paul was a Pharisee, which in Judaism there were different movements and sects, different thoughts about God. Paul was a Pharisee, which was a very orthodox, by the letter of the, of the law of God. That was the movement that he was a part of. He would have studied with the best. He would have been trained since he was very, very young. Had to have memorized most of the Old Testament scriptures to be where he was. He was on track to become a rabbi or a temple priest. And because of his training, because of his education, Paul did not believe Jesus was the Messiah. Jesus was a, was a threat to the Jewish religion, to the Orthodox Jewish religion. They felt it was a threat because Jesus came proclaiming himself as the Son of God and the fulfillment of all of the Old Testament laws and the prophecy. He said, that's about me. In Luke chapter 4, when Jesus is preaching, he says, I am the one who was prophesied would come as God's Son and redeem all of our people and the world back to God. And so for a Jewish Orthodox Pharisee to hear that the Messiah had come and it was in this person of of Jesus, Paul didn't buy it. And neither did the people who were training him. So Paul actually started off his career in ministry persecuting Christians. 
He would, he would go around and try to stamp out little pockets of Christianity wherever he could by killing them, by arresting them, by beating them. That was Paul's early life because he was so entrenched in his ideology. And where we meet Paul for the very first time in Acts chapter 7, he is participating in the killing of the first Christian martyr, a man named Stephen. So in Acts chapter 7, the, the Christian movement is starting, the church in Jerusalem is growing, and, and the, the Pharisee part of Judaism is trying to eradicate it. And Stephen, who is a follower of Jesus, begins proclaiming loudly about who Jesus is, that he has fulfilled the law, that, that, that you can belong to the movement of faith, you can have a relationship with God through Christ. And they rushed at Stephen and they dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. His accusers took off their coats and laid them at the feet of a young man named Saul. Saul was one of the witnesses and agreed completely with the killing of Stephen. Now what's going on here is that Saul just isn't standing on the sidelines watching. Saul doesn't want to get his hands dirty. He, he is orchestrating this whole thing, but he won't make himself religiously unclean by shedding blood. That was against Jewish law. So he's having a crowd do his dirty work while he just stands by and watches their stuff. That was Paul. And that's where we meet him for the very first time. And later in his life, Paul would write about this event. This, this event shaped who Paul was. It, it stuck with him. He writes about this quite often in his letters. Who he was before he met Jesus is, is a, an important part of his journey because he realizes the tremendous failure of where he started. That Paul was a failure in this phase of his life because he was simply on the wrong side. He had all of the information available to him. Again, Paul would have memorized most of the entire Old Testament, what we call the Old Testament. He knew every prophecy about the Messiah. He knew everything the Messiah was supposed to do when he arrived. And Jesus, having come and fulfilled every prophecy, performed every miracle the Old Testament said he would, including being born in a specific place at a specific time and dying in a specific way. Paul knew all of that about Jesus and completely rejected it and chose the side of persecution and oppression over the the side of God and his love through Jesus Christ. Paul was failure because he was on the wrong side of what God was doing in the world. And it's not popular to talk about sides. That's not something we do often in the church. In the church, we love to talk about building bridges, providing as much common ground as we possibly can, because it's important for us to be diverse, to have differing perspectives, opinions, views, especially within the context of scripture about who God says he is. But there are seasons there are moments in time where it is vital for the health and the life of individual Christians and the church to recognize what side God is on in relation to where we find ourselves at a current moment in history. What side is God on? Not to do with any human institutions, but to look carefully at the Bible and say, who does God say he is, and do we align ourselves with that? For 300 years during the Middle Ages, Christians used Scripture to defend the position of the Crusades, the different journeys they took to the Holy Land to try to recapture it, and they were responsible for the deaths of close to three million Muslims. That was the wrong side. During World War II, a majority of Christians and churches supported the rise of the Nazi party and what Hitler was doing in that country because in the 19 articles about Nazism, it said that they were the party of positive Christianity. And so they supported it, a majority of churches. And those that didn't directly support it were complicit in their silence, letting things happen. Thankfully, a couple of people didn't, but a majority did. 
at that time. That was the wrong side. In our own country during slavery and even up until the last century in the late 1960s before the end of Jim Crow separation and segregation laws, there were churches advocating for racism, prejudice, and the persecution of African Americans from Scripture, using the Bible to defend abhorrent prejudice. That was the wrong side. And we can say all kinds of things about hindsight being 2020, but Scripture is absolutely clear about whose side God is on. And if we're unwilling to align ourselves with God's side and we try to go at Him, we will fail every time. All of these things failed miserably because they were at odds with God's pure and perfect will through Jesus Christ. The, the most difficult part of this talk for me wasn't, wasn't this, and it wasn't even memorizing all of the dates of the rocket launches. I just didn't know that stuff. It was actually the scripture. How do I pare down the dozens and dozens of verses in the Bible that talk about who God is and what he cares about? It's all over the place. So I got it down to seven that we're going to look at here really quick. God says this about himself, do not rob the poor because they are poor or crush the afflicted at the gate for the Lord will plead their case and take the life of those who rob them from Proverbs 22. If you do not oppress the alien, the orphan or the widow and do not shed innocent blood in this place, then I will let you dwell in this place. Jeremiah 7. May he vindicate the afflicted of the people, save the children of the needy and crush the oppressor. Psalm 72, he who mocks the poor taunts his maker from Proverbs 17. He executes justice for the orphan and the widow and shows his love for the alien by giving him food and clothing, Deuteronomy 10. Open your mouth for the mute, for the rights of the unfortunate. Open your mouth, judge righteously and defend the rights of the afflicted and needy from Proverbs 31. The Lord will be a shelter for the oppressed, a stronghold in times of trouble, Psalm 9.9. Over and over and over in Scripture, God is resoundingly clear that He is always on the side of the oppressed and never on the side of the oppressor. God is always on the side of the persecuted and never the persecutor. And if we find ourselves ever in a place where we are opposite God's side at a moment in time, then we know we will fail at some point and we need to change. We need to change sides pure and simple if we find ourselves at odds with what God is doing in the world and who he says he is according to scripture. And especially through the person and work of Jesus Christ who advocated and fulfilled all of these attitudes and positions. The Jesus we follow is this same God who we read about in scripture. And that's what Paul realized. Paul realized that he was on the side of persecution and oppression and that God is ultimately on the side of love and grace and he needed to change. That was his first failure. And the moment he changed was miraculous in Acts chapter 9. He's on his way to go and persecute and kill more Christians in Damascus. That's the journey that he's on, a part of his job. And on the road to Damascus, he and his traveling companions are blinded by this bright white light. They fall to the ground and they hear a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who are you, Lord? asked Saul. And the voice replied, I am Jesus, the one you are persecuting. Jesus stands in the place of the oppressed. And he says, when you oppress somebody else, you are oppressing me. When you persecute somebody else, you are persecuting me. Jesus stands in that place. And Saul, his eyes are opened at this point, And he sees, he realizes spiritually that he has got it completely wrong. That God is about freedom. And that God is about setting people free from their sins, from their captivities, and loving them. And Saul decides he's got to change. 
He's awakened to the truth about who God is, that Jesus is the Messiah, that Jesus is the only way, truth, and life for access to God the Father. And he gets on board with it. And Paul, later in his life, again, writing about this, says that this wasn't just a mistake the way that I lived. This was failure the way I lived. In Philippians chapter 3, he's writing a letter to a church in Philippi, and he writes about all of the things he once considered great about himself. All of his education, his lineage, you know, his rights as a Roman citizen and his birthrights as a, as a born Jewish person. And he says, all these things I thought were great, but now I consider them worthless because of what Christ has done. Yes, everything else is worthless when compared with the infinite value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. In the same scripture, he calls all of that stuff garbage. All of the things that I was before I met Jesus, the things that I thought were successful and great about me are worthless when compared to the name of Jesus Christ. We sang it before. Is, is the name that you sing, the only name that you sing in your life, the name of Jesus Christ, or is it other things? Do you care more about other things than you care about Jesus? And Paul says, for me, that led to this life of persecution, and I was a failure because of the side that I was on. And so Paul changed. The, the resounding message for today about failure is that it will exist as long as you are unwilling to change. If you are encountering failure in your life, we're going to look at four different aspects of Paul's life where he failed and was willing to change, and that's what led to God using him to bear fruit through his life and through his ministry. And this first one is he just had to change sides. He had to get on board with what God was doing in the world through Jesus Christ. And as soon as he did, Paul was fired up. Paul immediately starts, go, he goes to Damascus where he was on his way anyway to go and kill Christians. And all of a sudden he shows up preaching Jesus Christ. And the people start freaking out. What is happening? This guy was here to kill us. And now he's telling us about how much God loves us through Jesus Christ. What's going on? And Paul was immediately excited to share with everybody this revelation that he has heard and experienced that it is God and his love through Christ that matters. And Paul starts doing that a lot. Paul is excited to get in this game, to, to start practicing his newfound faith in Jesus. Now, if you were just to read the book of Acts about Paul's life, Acts in the Bible tells the story of the early church. And in Acts, again, we looked at it, Acts chapter 9 tells us of his conversion experience. And it, it, it would almost appear as though, if you just read it quickly, that Paul was an immediate success that he starts telling people about Jesus and planting churches and, and it just explodes and it's a happy ending for Paul and that's not true. When you read his letters and you start to put together a timeline of Paul's life, he does that for about three years before he even goes to Jerusalem to talk about the leaders of the Christian faith. He's, he's trying to preach the gospel. He's trying to, to, to argue with Jewish leaders. He's trying to make disciples. He doesn't really know what he's doing because he's, he's, I think he's stalling. I think Paul was nervous to go back to Jerusalem to talk to Peter and James, who, who were friends with Stephen. They knew Stephen well. That was a tight-knit, small community of early Christians, and Stephen was killed by Paul, and now Paul knows he needs to go back and talk to those people, to go back and, and get, get approval, get their blessing, to continue to preach the gospel, to plant churches. And so finally, after three years of, of struggling to, to preach the gospel, he goes to Jerusalem. I think he swallows his pride a little bit, and he says, Peter, I need to be planting churches. Will you bless me to plant churches among the Gentiles? And, and Peter says, I really don't know what to do with you, Paul. Here you were just a few years ago killing our people, and now you say you want to work for us. I don't know. What would you say in that moment? What Peter said was, we think you should just maybe go home for a while. Go back to Tarsus, wait there, and we'll come and get you. 
Okay, so just go to your hometown and wait there for a while. And it wasn't until 14 years later that they go and find him, where very little is written about what Paul was up to. Paul was 17 years removed from his conversion before he did anything of significance in his life. He went back to Tarsus and he waited. In leadership speak, we talk about this as having a time on the bench. I love baseball. Baseball is my favorite sport, 100%. I played it every year I could when I was a kid, but I wasn't any good. I'm just not an athletic guy, and I can admit that now. It was harder back then, but I wasn't any good at baseball. I just loved it, and I loved to play the game. And thankfully, I had coaches who said, you're not any good. But if you want to play, <laughs> hindsight's 2020. It feels good now. They said, if you want to play, sit on the bench and watch people who are better. Sit on the bench and learn the rules. Learn strategy, learn how things go, and let us coach you while you're on the bench so that when you actually do get into the game, you don't ruin the team, you don't wreck yourself, and you don't experience catastrophic failure right away. Time on the bench is critically important for every single one of us in this life. There are seasons of your life where God doesn't want you to be productive, successful, doing all the things you imagine your life could be. He wants you just learning how to play the game. So that when you get a chance to be successful, you don't fail in a catastrophic way and give up. And that's what Paul was supposed to be doing these 17 years sitting on the bench. But it's actually clear from Scripture that he wasn't inactive. I don't think Paul was actually making the best use of this time or the fullest use of this time. Paul kept trying to get in the game even though he was supposed to be sitting on the bench. And the reason we know this, and, and scholars who study Paul's life, they look at his letters and they compare it to Acts. That's, that's kind of what they do. In his letters to the Corinthians, he writes all about the, the hardships and the suffering that he experienced as a follower of Jesus. And in that letter, he, he writes about being shipwrecked three different times. He writes about spending a night and a day drifting around at sea. He writes about being beaten with rods and whips eight different times. At least those were the ones that stuck out to him when he was writing the letter. He writes about being stoned once. He writes about being imprisoned countless times. But when you look at his life recorded in Acts, you don't encounter all of those different things. He's telling the Corinthians a lot more stuff than we actually learn about from his biography. And what, what scholars think is that a lot of the persecutions, the hardships that Paul experienced were during this 17 years when he was supposed to be on the bench. In Acts, we only read about one shipwreck. We read about the stoning and a couple of the beatings. That sounds really flippant to say. We only read about a couple of the beatings that Paul experienced, and he had a lot more. But we don't, we don't get the full picture because what Paul was doing when he was supposed to be on the bench was he was trying to get back in the game. Paul was smart. Paul had skills. Paul had education. He knew what he wanted to do. He had a vision for his life, and he was frustrated that he had to sit and wait. And Paul was impatient. So some of those shipwrecks probably sounded like, hey, I've got this great idea. I'm going to get on a boat. I'm going to go over to this place. I'm going to plant a church. And God said, no, you need to get back on the bench. And he wrecked his boat. Or he said, I've got this great idea. I want to go and tell these people about Jesus over here. So he went, and God said, no, you need to get back on the bench. And they had him beaten and sent back home. For 14 years, this is the rhythm of Paul's life, of encountering failure after failure because he is too impatient to allow God's timing to influence his life by just sitting and investing in his relationship with God. You, you can't sidestep, you can't shortcut intimacy with God. You can't shortcut character development. That's when, in this season, that's supposed to happen. Before you become influential, successful, important, or all of the other adjectives we attach to people that we look up to, you have to spend time just on your relationship with Jesus. Paul knew all about the theology. He knew all about the, you know, he memorized the Bible. He was a smart guy. 
But his relationship with Jesus was brand new. And God wanted him to spend time just working on that. And so the failure that he experienced was this failure of attitude, this failure of impatience, of wanting to be more than he was at the current time when God was just asking him to wait and to watch, to learn, and to grow. And so Paul experiences all of these failures because of that. Now, I'm not saying that this was necessarily bad. Failure is not a bad thing necessarily if you're willing to learn from it, if you're willing to take lessons away from whatever you're experiencing in this season of your life because God uses failure to teach us things. In the book of James chapter 1, it talks about this where it says, when troubles of any kind come your way, consider it an opportunity for great joy. For you know that when your faith is tested, your endurance has a chance to grow. Again, I love how honest the Bible is about this. Life is tough. Life is hard. But if you use it as an opportunity to grow in your faith, if you use it as an opportunity to, to let that have its effect, to, to, to create in you endurance and character, then you will get a chance to, to, to see your potential uh, reached. And that's what Paul saw. He let it have its effect. I don't know about you, but I, I don't think I've spent 14 years on a bench trying to get in the game and not really getting there. That's a lot of endurance that Paul had to achieve because I think God had big plans for him. God had, God had God-sized plans for Paul that could only happen if Paul was willing to ride the bench for a while and experience that kind of failure. Babe Ruth was one of the best baseball players that ever played. Depending on what you think about steroids, he's either two or three on the home runs list all time. But he had tremendous difficulty in his life. He was an orphan as a child, raised in an orphanage. He struggled his entire life with substance abuse, drugs, and alcohol. And he also struggled at the plate a fair amount. A lot of people know about the success he had, but he actually held the record for strikeouts for over a decade. Over 300 home runs 1,330 strikeouts lifetime. That's a record. And so when reporters would ask him about his life and about the struggles that he had, he said, every strikeout brings me closer to the next home run. I think that's such a great attitude to have. It's, like, it's almost like Babe Ruth translated James chapter 1. Every failure that you experience is a chance for you to learn something about your approach or your attitude or the side that you're on and to make an adjustment so that you can see fruit come from it. Otherwise, you'll just have to keep learning the same lessons over and over and over again. God loves you too much to let you stay where you are today as a person. God wants to see you reach your potential and do all the things that he dreams for your life, but that can't happen if you keep failing in the same ways, refusing to change or learn and grow. That's where God is in your failure if you're asking the question. He's right there trying to teach you something about the way to live your life if you're willing to listen and learn and adapt. And that's what Paul did. He, he allowed that season of failure to inform who had become so that when his number was finally called, and it was, he was ready for it. And so 14 years later, Peter, the leader of the Jerusalem church, says, hey, I remember that thing Jesus said about making disciples of all the nations. I think we ought to do that now. And Barnabas, who was a part of their team, said, I remember this guy, Paul, that we sent back up to Tarsus because we didn't know what to do with him. He was pretty fired up about that. I think we should go find him. So Barnabas goes up to Tarsus, finds Paul. I think he just asked around for whoever was causing the most trouble, and that's where Paul was. And he said, Paul, it's your turn. We need you to go plant churches among the Gentiles. Are you ready to go? And Paul said, absolutely. So Paul and Barnabas and John Mark form this team. 
the very first missionary team ever in the history of the world. They had nothing like this had ever been done. They were going to start this thing called a church that had not existed until then, where they were going to tell people about the good news of Jesus Christ, that he was the fulfillment of all of the prophecies about God, and that you could have a relationship with God through Jesus Christ, and they were going to set out and preach this and try to plant a thing called a church, and it was a failure, this first missionary journey. It doesn't say, Acts doesn't say, and it went badly. It, you have to read between the lines. Their approach on this first journey, and you can't be too hard on Paul. They didn't know what they were doing. They were making it up for the first time. You know, it was the first couple of rocket launches that just kept exploding and blowing up. They were making these trips, and their approach was, was radically fast. It was just too quick. It would be as though we wanted, if we wanted to plant a new Hope campus... And instead of spending, you know, years of planning and discipleship and, and leadership development and coaching, and we were building connections in the local community, wherever it was that we wanted to send a site, instead of doing all of that work to build the church, Paul and, and Barnabas and John Mark would go into these towns, and it would be like they, they soapbox preached for two weeks, finally got some converts, and they said, you guys are good to go. You're, you're now a church, and we're going to go on to the next town. After a couple of weeks, it was a giant mess. Paul and his companions covered 1,500 miles in one year on foot in this first year. They were in a hurry to get this thing done. They, they, their approach was, was fast. It was hurried. They, I think they took it seriously that when Jesus said, make disciples of all the nations, Paul probably had the attitude that that was on him. He was going to have to figure out how to cover that much ground in his own lifetime. And that was an arrogant approach. And it was just too quick impatient still. And Paul is still learning this lesson that, that you might need to change your approach because all of these churches in Galatia failed. As soon as Paul and Barnabas left, they began having struggles with different ideologies and myths. And when you read Paul's letter back to the Galatians, it's an incredibly angry letter. Paul's saying, how could you do this? How could you leave behind the truth of the gospel and follow these weird ideas that some guy's telling you about that doesn't have anything to do with scripture? And that was the case of the Galatian church. And every time Paul had to make a, a missionary journey to plant other churches, he would have to go through Galatia to keep getting these churches back on track because they were just wandering their entire life. I've actually been here. I've been to, this is now called Antalya. Uh, some of these are pictures from Antalya. Uh, and it's amazing to be able to walk where Paul walked, to be the dock where he walked is still there. It's a beautiful part of the world. There is, there is almost zero Christian presence in this part of the world today. It's an incredibly, it's a, it's a struggle for the missionaries who live there, even still. My dad taught me a fair amount about construction, and I'm sure this isn't a new quote to any one of you, but my dad taught me that if you measure twice, you only have to cut once. But if you take your time, if, if you're careful with your measurements, with your preparation, then you don't make mistakes that you're going to have to clean up later. Paul had to clean up these mistakes over and over and over in his life because he was in too big of a hurry, and it was a failure. So Paul made, again, another adjustment. Paul was willing to change his approach. The second time around looked a lot different. Paul knew he'd have to take his time. Paul also knew that he would have to take a different team. John Mark, who was a part of the three that left on this journey, he took off halfway through. John Mark said, I'm out. I quit. I don't want to do this anymore. And he went home. And it doesn't say why, it just says that he abandoned the journey halfway in and left Paul and Barnabas on their own. And so when the second time around came where they were going to go back out and plant more churches, take their time, go a little bit slower, Barnabas asked Paul, should we take John Mark? And Paul said, no way, not a chance. I will not do work with somebody who's going to give up halfway through. He can't be on my team. And Paul was adamant about that. 
Now, that didn't mean that God didn't have plans for John Mark's life. He absolutely did. He would go on to write the gospel according to Mark. He was an important figure in the leadership of the church, and God did great things through Mark, but he was not going to be on Paul's team anymore because Paul knew that he would need to surround himself to do all the things that God had planned for Paul's life. He needed to be surrounded by a team who wasn't going to quit, who wasn't going to give up. So who's on your team right now? If you're experiencing a season of failure, who are you surrounded by? Are they a part of your success in life? The people who are speaking into your situation right now, are they helping you succeed, helping you grow, or are they contributing to continued failure? Your team is so important, whoever is in your life, whoever's a part of what God is doing in your life. And if it needs to change, then it needs to change. All of these things we need to adjust and be willing to learn from those failures. In 1970, NASA had one of its biggest failures because they sent up, they, I mean, they figured out launching rockets, but they had a team of people in space going to the moon when Apollo 13 failed in outer space. And, and, and everything went wrong for them. But because I think of the generations of, of learning from failure and, and being careful about it, they had the right team put together to be able to rescue the mission, to be able to get people home, and to have success where failure seemed certain. Let's take a look. Roger, let's tie all the batteries on a main A and main B. Flight, they're still showering a bit up there. Do you want to tell them? Is there anything we could do about it? Not now, Flight. And they don't need to know, do they? Copy that. Is my phone still present in the splashdown? Yeah. We got the parachute situation, the heat shield, the angle of trajectory in the typhoon. There's just so many variables I'm a little I know what the problems are, Henry. This could be the worst disaster NASA's ever experienced. With all due respect, sir, I believe this is going to be our finest hour. I expect entry interface in 45 seconds. And on my mark, your velocity will be 35,245 feet per second. Marked. 35 seconds to entry interface. Gentlemen, it's been a privilege flying with you. So who's on your team? You know, is it the guy in the background who's panicking, who says you can't win, you can't succeed, this is going to be a disaster? Or is it somebody else who's saying we can overcome this, we can get through this together, we'll work on it together? Who's sitting next to you in this rocket ship? Because you have a decision to make about all of these things. And if you're willing to change again and learn from, from past failures, I think that's when the fruit really starts to show up. So Paul, the second and third time around, goes out to plant churches. He goes farther out than he ever thought. He takes a bigger team this time because he realizes he had too few. And he starts to pick up team members along the way, recruiting leaders from these towns out of people that they're meeting. Changed his approach changed his side, changed his attitude, and changed his team, and he begins to see the kinds of things that God had planned. Again, laying the foundation for future success only came from learning and changing from failure that happened in the past. And so I don't know what season you're in right now. You might need to change sides. You might need to change your attitude. You might need to change your approach. 
or the people you're surrounded by, but, but where God is in your failure is that teaching moment, that place where you get a chance to learn and to grow and then to go further. I think what, one of the things that, that excites me that I'm inspired by, by uh, space exploration ever since I was a little kid, I just was really into rockets and rocketry and all these things. And, and when they finally figured out launching, that was, a, that was a huge thing because everyone said that that can't be done. You can't, you can't send a rocket or a person up into space. And now it's like a generation later, that's no big deal. But now they want to try to go further. How far can we go? Well, to do that, we're going to need to figure out how to land a rocket. And people said, well, you can't do that. That's impossible. Until people started to say, I don't think so. I think in order for us to go as far as we possibly can, we can do the impossible if we're willing to keep learning from our failures. Let's take a look. I was just in the mood to watch explosions this week or something. It was great. I loved all the tags at the bottom. You know, they were funny, but it also said, this is what went wrong. This is what broke, and then we're going to fix that. And then this is what broke, and then we're going to fix that. And maybe today in your life, it feels like explosion after explosion, and you just don't know if you're ever going to see the end of it. This is a quote from William Carey, who's, so Paul was the father of missions. William Carey is considered to be the father of modern missions. In the 1700s, he went from England to India and finished his life there translating the Bible and planting churches. And he said this, expect great things from God and attempt great things for God. I think that's all that God asks from us is an attempt. Failure means that you're trying, and that's actually a good news. If you're not failing, that might mean that you're not trying. And God wants us to at least attempt and to expect him to follow through. 
when, when Paul was planting churches, he said that we plant seeds, we water seeds, but God is one that makes it grow. God is asking you to plant and water seeds and not every single one of them is going to grow up. Some will fail and some will crash and burn. But when they do grow, that means that you can expect God has shown up in your life and brought success where all you provided was the attempt and the effort. So whatever you're going through in life right now, God is here with you telling you that, that you can keep trying, you can keep learning, and you can keep going for, for, forward. And he has things planned for your life that you might not even see today. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the time you've given us here this morning. Uh, I pray over our church, Lord, that you would help us to be a place that is constantly responding to what you're doing in the world, um, eager and willing to see your love and your grace extended to the world around us so that they can know that you are the way, the truth, and the life. We thank you that we experience that grace personally, individually, and, and together as a family. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.